Welcome to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Radai. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and next to me here in the studio is my friend Niklas Savos. How are you doing today? I'm really good. Uh, spring is approaching, sun is shining, and we have a really interesting guest today. I agree. Today we're talking with Oddbjörn Duvad, Investment Director and Portfolio Manager of REQ Global Compounders. He is also the author of Investing in Value Creators, Time-Tested Principles for Long-Term Stock Investments. Why have we chosen this book? To me, what really stands out with this book is Oddbjörn's innovative conclusions from his long experience as a money manager. He also illustrates his thoughts uh, very well through both tables and graphs, and uh, he touches upon both qualitative factors such as corporate culture and management, but also a lot of quantitative factors, which are yeah the, the most important ones for for in in his philosophy. And uh, I think he explains the concepts really well with examples and backed by by theory. And uh, he's really open with his mistakes. And uh, so overall, I think it's a short and comprehensive book that we highly recommend reading. And how does the book fit with our quality rating here at Red Eye? So I think it fits really well with the with the quality rating. Um, maybe so well that it seems like uh, that that Bjorn, the creator of the Red Eye quality rating, and Oddbjorn has. Uh, has uh, discussed this, but uh, yeah. I don't think that's the case. But <laughs> Yeah, but maybe great minds think alike. <laughs> the, uh, the philosophy is, uh, is really centered on how to evaluate management and business quality, and that is key in the Red Eye Quality Rating as well. And uh, yeah, it's, it's all in all really similar to the checklist we use at Red Eye and I use as an analyst and investor. And here in the podcast, we want to provide you with timeless content and we are careful to promote things. But we know that our guest today and many of you listeners are interested in serial acquirers. And we therefore want to mention that we will here at Red Eye host such a theme event focusing on serial acquiring companies on May 18, 2022. This will be in English and you can watch it live or on replay with a free Red Eye account. You find the link in the show notes. And now we are grateful and excited to have the author of Investing in Value Creators on the show. Here comes our conversation with Oddbjörn Dybvall. Hello Oddbjörn and welcome to Investing by the Books podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks for the invite. Where are you today? Well, I'm, I'm sitting in Oslo uh, and um, together with my colleagues here and it's a nice sunny day. Can you tell a bit uh, about yourself and and your firm? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, I've been been managing global equities on the buy side for 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 fifteen years, and and uh, and uh, the last year uh, we started a, a new asset management company here in Oslo called REQ Capital, uh, and, and we launched uh, the the first uh, global equity fund. I think yeah, seven months ago. Uh, it's it's really great to, to build a company where you can manage capital uh, for others just, just the way you would, would manage your own. And um, yeah, uh, over the years I, I've just been fortunate to have some very inspiring mentors and, and colleagues along the way who, who has taught me a lot about investing. So looking forward to to, to have a talk uh, talk about uh, our philosophy and strategy. And how did this passion for investing start? Well, uh, I, I'm 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 not one of those who who bought my first stock at the age of fifteen. I have to admit, but but I really think that 
my passion started uh, as I entered the industry, actually, and, and, and gained a, a better understanding on, on, on what really drives stock returns of the long run. And uh, I have to admit that, you know, early early in my investment journey, I, I made a lot of mistakes and uh, because I did not have a, a consistent framework, so to say. Uh, so I didn't have a philosophy and uh, I did not know what to look for in companies. And uh, for, for, for my part, I think passion has become stronger and stronger uh, as, as, as I've gained a bit more insight. And, and what I, I think it is important is in, in order to, to stay in this game is, is, is to fall in love with the process. And I, I think you need to be, well, curious and open-minded, but, but at the same time have an investment philosophy. And, and it, it doesn't need to be the same kind of philosophy as we have, uh, but it has to be something that you just strongly believe in and, and can guide you on the way. So, so the, the passion for investing got stronger and stronger the more books and articles I read and then the more interaction I had with investors and, and management. And after even even after 15 years in, in, the, in this business, I, I find it very fun to find a new investment and that ticks all the boxes in the philosophy. And that's just great. So that, that's been my journey. Interesting. And, and last year you published your, your first book, uh, Investing in Value Creators. Uh, why did you decide to write a book? Well, uh, I, I've just realized that I do not uh, think clearly before I put thoughts down on paper. So, so I like writing because when I, when I put thoughts down on paper, I, I, I think I better understand my gaps in, in terms of reasoning. And I, I think I learn better by writing and teaching than just than just reading and, and there there have been many instances where, where I thought I understood that topic and, and just to realize that I had a lot of gaps in terms of understanding when I tried to put it down on paper and uh, at, at the same time I, I like process and uh, I like the, the idea of, of starting um, a challenging task which which writing a book clearly is and and do a little bit of work every single day and uh, see where it takes you over a year. And, and that process attitude, uh, I think, fits well with writing a book, I think. So, so, so yeah, so it, it has been a great fun writing it. And what kind of feedback have you received? Yeah, it's, it's uh, good. You know, it's, it's a very condensed book and it's, it's um, uh, well, I, the feedback is good and, and people like it. And uh, I think it gives some, some, uh, some, yeah, some perspectives that that um, you know are, are not just uh, theoretical, but also some some practical flavor to it. And we'll get into the book more. But can you start out with uh, describing your investment philosophy? Mm. Well, well, first of all, I would like to say that really no investment philosophy fits everyone, and 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 uh, investors have you know different experience and different time perspectives and, and different clients and all of that, but. We believe that in, in investment analysis is, is much to do about pattern recognition. And, and we believe that we have seen some patterns over the years that have, have formed our philosophy. And, and our philosophy is quite simple, but, but I think it's effective if, if you aim to generate long-term uh, good returns. And on an overall level, we invest in value creators. So, so companies that are able to deploy capital at very high returns over very long periods of time. And, and the strategies is to find these value creators. To, to find these value creators is is to to focus on on three essential ingredients that that being capital allocation, decentralization, and, and people. Uh, 
And so when it when it comes to when it comes to capital allocation, we, we want to invest in in management teams that are uh, outstanding investors. I would say uh, in, investing is really a, a chain of trust where we give capital to to management teams, and and we spend a lot of time trying to find management teams that we believe are exceptional at at allocating capital, and and, and these management teams are are not not just not just strong investors, uh, they also have a lot of freedom to allocate capital. So um, uh, I do think that reinvestment is a, is a critical component uh, of, of any investment. And, and we need to find companies that have a lot of room to reinvest capital, um, both organically and, and also through acquisitions. So, so our companies often compound capital by by using strong free cash flow to, to acquire small private companies. And, and they also have the ability to, to deploy the, the, the majority of, of their the free cash flow in, in acquisitions. So, so um, in our view, identifying management teams with, with strong, you know, capital allocation skills is, 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 is not, not enough uh, on its own for, for a company to make it into our portfolios. But, we also want these teams to, to operate in markets where they, well, they, they can deploy a great deal of capital over many decades. And, and finally, if, uh, finally, management teams must, must also have the freedom to, do, to, to deploy capital as, as they see fit. So, so for example, you know, we, we, we would not invest in a company where the board has decided that, let's say, 80% of, of net income should be paid out as, as dividends to us. Um, Regardless of capital allocation opportunities, we, we, we really want managers who have the freedom to allocate capital in, in the best in possible way for us. And, and so, so when we find CEOs who we think are highly competent in, in both the human and, and also the uh, human cultural aspects, but also capital allocation, we, 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 we pay a lot of attention to these, these companies. We, we, what we have witnessed over over the years is, is is that capital allocation has you know major impact on 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 the value created by the company and and consequently on on, on stock returns. Uh, and I, I guess most most listeners have 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 read the the the, the book by by William Thorndike called The Outsiders. I would highly recommend that book. It, it's 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 about capital allocation and. And uh, what what Thorndike explains is that the, the main task in capital allocation is to tap the right source of capital and, and deploy deploy that capital at at high returns. And, uh, and so the CEO we try to find know what source of capital uh, to tap into and, and how to deploy it. And um, I think if you if you get a got a consistent process. Uh, in a company, in in terms of capital allocation, the, the the results can be quite extraordinary. I would say so. So finding and investing in and, and sticking with these type of management teams is is what I believe investing is all about. And how important is communication? Yeah, you know, communication is also uh, very important, and 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 uh, that that really goes down to to. Um, um, People, I would say, because um, the, the the people we invest in, they 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 tend to um, communicate quite differently than 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 most management teams. They are, 
um, they often don't provide short-term guidance. That, that's that's one thing. Uh, they they often you know the, 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 many of them are down to earth. They are quite pragmatic. Uh, they are quite direct. They they uh, are quite open about mistakes, and and I think that sends the right signals. Uh, internally and, and it also sends the right signals to investors so 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 i i, I really like listening in to, to 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 management calls and 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 just hear how they actually communicate i think that's that's very very important so 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 the first part of, of the philosophy is really capital allocation and and the, and the second ingredient if you can call it that is is uh, decentralization <laughs> And that, that has to do with how companies organize themselves. And I would say that, you know, practicing simplicity in, in, in this corporate world is, is in terms of organization is, is actually a very complex task. And, and, and our investment philosophy is, is based on the belief that, you know, a decentralized, non-bureaucratic and how should I put it, independence, independent governance model is, is, is the best tool to, to foster entrepreneurship and 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 uh, performance so so when, when we talk about decentralized business models uh, they consist of many underlying companies um, but but they are very different from call it traditional bureaucratic conglomerates uh, and and you know over time as, as companies get larger uh, bureaucracy tends to take its toll on, on a company's adaptability and accountability and as a result, sooner or later, you know, you, you, the entire culture and the financial engine of the company is corrupted by, by bureaucracy. And the opposite of that is, is decentralization. Uh, you know, uh, the, the very opposite of centralization where decision-making is, is really removed from, from, from the, the people taking the real economic decisions. And the result in, in very centralized organizations is that it's, it's often a blame game, right? Where, where, where management and middle management blame each other. And um, so, so we try and avoid that. And so we, we try to find these kind of uh, companies that embrace decentralization. And, and uh, I think Mark Leonard in Constellation Software, he uses a term called high performance conglomerates. I really like that term uh, because uh, that, that's the kind of, of organizations we, we, we look to find. Um, so, so, so we try to find companies that organize themselves into into small teams where there is a lot of autonomy and trust, and 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 where ind- individual managers of the various businesses are are given a great deal of autonomy for for over their activities. So, so in essence, we we strongly believe in entrepreneurship and autonomy, and and, and uh, I, I think the decentralized approach. Uh, applied in the right way, uh, you know, g- unleashes really the best, uh, um, you know, in all of us and sets the stage for, for, for strong value creation. And, and uh, that's why you find a, lo- a lot of these type of models in, in our fund. And the last part, of course, uh, in terms of our philosophies has to do with, with people. It has to do with, uh, like we just talked about, owner operators. It has to do with, with um, people. Uh, that are viewed as outsiders and you know they're very determined about how they want to run their business they don't care about conventional wisdom so to speak and um, so so all in all those those three actually 
it forms the philosophy of of of, um, of our funds. So so be it capital allocation, decentralization, and, and people with with a high degree of ownership. And the, I mean, you 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 also mention in the book that that strong and adaptive corporate cultures generate the best results. And I think you summarize that in a very good way here. Uh, why you think culture is so important and, and what's, a, what's a great culture. Uh, having read the, a few books on um, competitive advantages and moats, thought leaders such as uh, Pat Dorsey and Bruce Greenwald uh, don't bring up uh, corporate culture as, as a moat uh, in itself. Uh, I think Pat Dorsey mentioned something that, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a quite soft uh, measure. What's, what's your view on that? Well... Uh, I, I, I really think it depends on, on what you define as a moat, really. Uh, I think that all aspects surrounding a company that, that contribute to securing a high return on capital over the long run actually can be considered a moat. So, so if you look at Warren Buffett, you know, who I think it reduced the term moat, uh, I, I do believe that the success of Berkshire uh, has more to do with the culture being built by Buffett and Munger over the years than the brands and the production facilities of, of the underlying subs- subsidiaries. So, so all in all, I, I, I think, I actually do think that corporate culture is a moat, uh, but of course it's not static. It, it has to be nurtured. It has to be invested behind just, just like all other type of moats. And speaking about corporate culture and management, uh, you mentioned many mistakes you have made in, in the book and uh, that's, very enlightening for us to read about um, so but we were also wondering what kind of uh, mistakes you have made when it comes to management teams and, and owners mm. and investing with the wrong ones yeah <laughs> I, 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 I just think that learning from your mistakes is a, is a very important part of investing and, and we all make mistakes and, and those investors who, who actually learn from their mistakes they will they will be the most successful I think and I think that if, if if you're not if you're not able to see the patterns in the mistakes you have made as an investor, you you should just keep looking because you will find some patterns. Uh, I really like the term confident humility. I, I, I used by uh, I just read a book uh, by Adam Grant uh, called Think Again, and he uses that term confident humility. You know, we want to invest in management teams that are confident about what they're doing but also have the ability to admit mistakes. And I think admitting mistakes sends the right signals, as I just said, not just to investors, but but to the whole organizations that you don't cover up. So so let's let's just say that if, if I were evaluating a, a fund manager like myself, you know, the first and most important question I would ask him or her is, is what are your biggest mistakes over the years and, and what have you learned from them? And, and the fund manager's answer to that question would be important to the evaluation of, the, of whether we should put money behind that manager or not. And, and I think the same goes with management teams, you know, ask them about mistakes and, 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 and see how they respond. And my, my personal experience that might not be right, but it's, is that it, it's, it's, it's very easy to be charmed by, by charismatic management. In my experience, you know, uh, personally, I, I just find it best to avoid the overly charismatic managers. I, I, I might be wrong on this, but but it's just my experience. And uh, you need more than just charisma, I think. And I think it's helpful to consider how how employees really feel could could potentially feel about the CEO sitting in front of you. 
because if if the company is a one man or one woman show, uh, you know, uh, or 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 is the CEO able to to see it and acknowledge uh, company employees? Uh, I think that's worth thinking about before before uh, in, in investing. So so I like CEOs who are down to earth, pragmatic, able to delegate a lot of responsibility and. I want to invest in companies that are run by CEOs who, who I think are a good role model, I think. So, so uh, yeah, the, the, these are all, of course, non-financial aspects that are more difficult to evaluate than financial numbers. But I think these qualitative assessments are, are just increases the chances of, of good share, shareholder returns. So I think I'll just leave it with that. And I mean, having read a few annual reports and, and listened to to earnings calls and so on, uh, it's quite rare that the management brings up mistakes. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. it's typically hidden and yeah. maybe maybe you can get it from some by, by talking to them directly. But why are management teams so afraid of talking about mistakes, you think? I think, uh, you know, um, the, the, there could be many reasons, but, but I, I think that, you, you know, if you don't start uh, uh, you know, it's it's very difficult to start talking about mistakes. But if you do it from the very beginning, I, I think you 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 really manage expectations much better than 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 uh, than not. And I, I think that uh, most management teams are really uh, thinking that you you should always paint a, a, a rosy picture. And uh, I I just think that. You have more to win in the long run as a CEO to 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 just uh, be very uh, frank and open uh, about the, the challenges because then you 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 set the, uh, so, some expectations that you know you that uh, you you can actually uh, achieve and and I think investors actually 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 see this uh, that that you know openness is is something that you. You as a company um, will will um, gain from. And besides talking to management, how much do you speak with other employees or suppliers or competitors to understand management? Yeah, we, 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 since since we have quite a lot of we have quite a lot of serial acquirers in 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 our fund and, and quite a lot of, of companies that buy a lot of of. Uh, small private companies and and it's, it's quite interesting to talk to sellers i think we 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 have, we have done quite a lot of that at least in the nordics here where 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 we have to- talked to to private sellers that sell into our uh, our conglomerates and and what they uh, you know their insight is is quite interesting to hear i think just listening to you here and reading your book it's clear that you really are business focused and not stock focused um but what are the key quantitative metrics you look for to determine the the value creation of a business? Well, uh, as we all know, you know, value creation is a function of growth and return on capital, and and I think that all other quantitative measures all boil down to those two metrics. I think, and and shareholder value is is created when a company grows with with a return on capital that exceeds the cost of capital. So so. No value is created in companies whose whose growth is zero, or or in companies that are unable to generate return on capital above cost of capital. So so that's just a theoretical one. But you know, with that in mind, you you, you can actually find what you can ju- justify paying for different companies. 
that are able to deploy incremental capital at various rates of return and and, and the runway of growth prospects uh, are of course important in the, in that regards and and what i think is is striking is is really how valuable growth is when return on capital is high and and durability in terms of runway is low so an increasing growth increases the value of a company with a high return on capital many many times over so if if I were a CEO of, of a company with let's say eighteen percent return on capital, I would I would actually spend all my time trying to find growth opportunities rather than than trying to continue to increase profitability because with that kind of return on capital growth creates a lot of value. So 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 the, the long answer to your question uh, is is really that exceptional companies are are worth much more than you can imagine and it all boils down to the quantitative metrics of returning capital and growth and of course in addition to the durability of the business model which which is perhaps more of a qualitative insight i think and if you push the return on capital too high then you will attract more competitors i guess Of, of course of course and i think connected with this you you have a whole you have a chapter on hyperbolic discounting uh, can you can you describe what you mean by this term? Because I think it's highly connected to what you talked about now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> it's interesting that you mentioned that. Uh, this, of course, uh, is is financial theory, but but and and, and perhaps for, for financial nerds. But but the reason I find hyperbolic discounting interesting is is the fact that I actually believe the concept provides some interesting practical insights. And it's, it's, of course, easier to draw this idea on a piece of paper than trying to ex- explain it, but uh, I can try. So, so, so the discounting of cash flows is, is, of course, normally discounted using what we call exponential discounting, right? And, and this discounting method is, is the standard method for discounting cash flows. I, I think we all use it uh, since we all know it by heart from, from business schools. But, but what I find interesting is what this way of discounting cash flows actually mean and and is it really the right way to, to discount cash flows so uh, the, the the traditional uh, way of discounting is is time insensitive which means that you know you have the same relative decline in the discount factor as time goes by so 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 consequently you know cash flows that are far 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 in the future are are not worth much under exponential discounting so what i find interesting that if, if you look at behavioral studies of humans, we do not act as traditional economic theory often claims, meaning that we are not rational <laughs> uh, and, and our way of discounting as humans is, is time sensitive, which means that we use different discounts rate, discount rates depending on how long it time to get to get a payoff. So, so, so let's, uh, I use an example in the book though. If you can choose between receiving $100 today and $110 in one year, people in experiments have a strong tendency to choose $100 today. They get the instant gratification, right? But, but in, an, in another example, you, you can choose between receiving $100 in 10 years and $110 in 11 years. And actually, behavioral studies show that in this situation, people actually tend to be willing to wait an extra year uh, to year 11 to get the $110. So since since the instant gratification is not there anyway, we act more rational, I think. And, and we just wait another year until year 11 instead of receiving the payout in year 10. Uh, 
it's it's so far into the future anyway. So so the challenge in ex, in in the second example is in in which you have decided to wait eleven years is that when you approach year ten, you would rather get instant gratification, right? Uh, in other words, people avoid waiting the closer they get to the end of the waiting period. So so uh, in in the short term, people people are irrational, but in the longer term, they choose the rational option. And and the back to hyperbolic discounting. Back back to the, the basis is really human behavior. The the pattern that emerge emerges from the way people choose as time goes on, follows what is called a hyperbola. And, and people do not appear to use a constant discount discount factor uh, as exponential discounting. And people make decisions that are much more similar to hyperbolic discounting. And and what what practical insight does this have? You know, in the hyperbolic formula, the present value of short term cash flow is is lower than in the exponential model, but the present value of very long term cash flows that we actually talked about is higher than in the exponential model. So consequently, the terminal value that we all know in, in hyperbolic discounting for companies with very durable competitive long term advantages that we have talked a lot about will be much higher than in the model that we have learned from business school. So I, I think in the book I, I use an example where where, where I discount a, a long term cash flow with the two different uh, models and 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 in the hyperbolic one you you get the uh, in the in, in my example forty percent higher net present value and I have to say that I'm, I'm not arguing that we all should flip our DCF models and start using hyperbolic discounting instead. The, the reason I find the topic interesting is is that hyperbolic discounting might might be one of the reasons why it's very strong companies with highly predictable cash flows long into the future are priced much higher than other companies in the stock market. And perhaps so perhaps market participants in, in aggregate price these stocks by discounting their cash flow with a discounting mechanism that is closer to the hyperbolic discounting method than the exponential one. So yeah, I think that sums up the concept. It's it's perhaps for financial nerds, but but it gets you into some quite interesting discussions. No, and I think I mean your example really makes it easy to understand. I mean that if you take I mean comparing what you can get in the next year from the 10th to 11th year. And I think, I mean, intuitively, I think I really agree with that concept. And I, I urge everyone to buy the book where you can see the, the graphs and more visual uh, examples. So related to this is volatility, because when you, uh, with your model, you might get a higher net present value, but the market might not see it that way and might do short-term selling, uh, which we have seen in, in now recently, at least. Uh, so how do you deal with this type of uh, situations? Well, it's, it's a good question how you, how you cope with volatility. And, and first, I would say that it, it's, quite, it's, it's deeply relaxing to buy things you never plan to sell. And, and you know, the longer you extend your time horizon, the less competitive investing in stocks becomes, I think, because most of the investment world is committed to a very short time frame. So, you know, as you as you allude to on, on short-term horizons, let's say a few years, the only thing that matters to your return is changes in, in, in the sentiment or, or uh, in, in, the, in the multiple and, uh, and other, you know, short-term issues. And, and not many people get this kind of speculation on where the multiple is going right. So, so the way we cope with it, with it is to, to spend almost all of our time on 
companies, not stocks. And it's, it's easier to cope with volatility when you switch off your screens and, and you know, focus on, on, on companies instead. And when you're confident in the, in the companies that you have chosen, you get more relaxed in, in vol- volatile environments as, as we have right now. And we know that the market will put the right price tag on these companies in the long run, uh, a price tag that reflects the current value over time. So, so that's our way of trying to, to stay calm in volatile markets. And the companies that you own, they are not dependent on, on raising capital and so on. No, no, no. So, so many of them have a net cash position and they generate very, very good cash flow. So, so. And how do you, how does your the the investors in your fund how do they cope with the well with the volatility? We're, we're quite fortunate in that regards, uh, and, and our investors have, have, are very patient. And in, in in spite of the market volatility that we have seen, we, we haven't witnessed any redemptions. But or, or, or I think that our investors fully understand our philosophy and, and invest for the long run. And I think that's a great advantage uh, for us as a, as, as a manager of, 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 of these funds. And I mean, that's connected to what you what we spoke about before with, uh, for example, managers in, in companies talking about mistakes and managing expectations and so on. Yeah. And that's exactly, it's the same thing for you, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's the same. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about philosophy and uh, very little time on, on talking about stock market. And, uh, and uh, I think that helps. And we also, quite a lot of our clients are um, actually founders themselves that have, have built companies. They know it takes time and, and they, 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 they know that, you know, value is created over years, not quarters. And what would you say are your most common biases when you're investing? Oh, <laughs> that's a good one. Where to start? Uh, yeah, I guess I guess we have the same kind of bias as everyone, uh, like everyone else, and and you know we work to minimize those biases. And I, I think one common mistake I have made several times historically is, is selling stocks way too early, uh, just because uh, of, a, of a strong share price run. And you know these exits have, have been in companies which. I've been strong long-term compounders, and I have very seldom been able to enter the stock again at, at, at of course, a higher price point. And I'm not sure if it is a bias, so to speak, but but some of my worst investments have, have been in companies that I have spent way too much time analyzing. And, and the key takeaway from these mistakes for me has been to try to find companies that are very easy to understand and where you do not need a, need a lot of spreadsheets in, in order to make up your mind. So when you feel you have to start digging into the details of a company you own, my experience has many times been that I have initially bought the wrong company. So, so if, you, if you need to, to read all the notes in the back of the annual report uh, of, of all the companies you own, I, I would argue that you do not trust the company in the, in, in, in the first instance. So... This experience has it has really made me much less interested in complicated business models. I, I like simplicity. I, I like to read the quarterly or, or the annual report and make up my mind quite quickly whether or not the company is going in the right direction or not. Uh, I've, I've seen that too much information about the company often just leads me to decision fatigue and in complex business models, you, you, you're, not, you're not able to make up your mind about the di- direction of the company and because there are too many, uh, how should I put it, con- contradictory signals. And, and I would say that 
regarding the path forward, uh, yeah, too many uh, different signals about the path forward. So, so simplicity wins over complexity in investing. And so, so on top of mind, that that is perhaps the the biggest bias. And and I, I have, yeah, I have, and I, I think most investors struggle with with the same kind of things. And going a bit deeper into business models you like, we know that you uh, that you have a few serial acquirers in your in your fund, and um, I we have discussed this uh, me and Eddie for quite a long time. That uh, I mean, they were really in favor in in twenty twenty one. Maybe now they are a bit less in favor, uh, as uh, I mean, they have been brought down with the with the with the whole. Uh, growth uh, sphere so to speak um but you actually talk a lot about that investors don't need to search uh, for businesses that are actually out of favor uh, currently to achieve great returns they can just frame their dif- their, their investments a bit differently from from others uh, can you expand on that a bit yeah um when it, when it comes to to framing i i think you know um uh, I, I've come to the conclusion that there, there are really two different kinds of advantages you, you might have as an investor. And, and the first one is, is how you treat information or frame it, as you say. And, and the other is, you know, what should I call it, a, a time horizon advantage over other, other investors. And I think that the time when, when you as an investor had an information advantage is, is more or less over uh, long ago. And, and today, information about companies is so instant and everyone gets the same kind of information all the time. And But I think information treatment can, can or, or how you frame it can be, be, be an advantage. So, so the ability to, to filter relevant information from, from irrelevant information. And, and I think it's easier to do this filtering if you've got some basic investment principles uh, that you follow and, and of course a long-term investing horizon because then you know what what to look for and, and what not to spend time on and um, yeah inf- information treatment has to do with what kind of information you regard as relevant for your investment you might think that all kind of information that is thrown at you is relevant but of course it, it, it it's not and um, yeah regarding the second one uh, Regarding time horizon advantage, uh, you know, most money in the stock market is is managed by professional investors, and most of them are incentivized on very short term horizon of one and two and three years. And I, I believe this creates an opportunity for private investors who are, who are willing to buy companies with a, with a multi year perspective. I mean, thinking about also, I mean, going in a bit deeper into serial acquirers, as you are, you're an expert in that in that area. Um, um, and speaking about patience, um, how much is a concern when uh, prices for acquisition targets for these companies is uh, starting to climb? Yeah, um, well, I would say that first of all, there are both good and bad serial acquirers. And, and there, there are lots of serial acquirers we have looked at that we have not considered at, at, as potential investments at all. Regarding your point to 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 acquisition prices we 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 haven't really at 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 the serial acquirers that we own we haven't really seen a a huge pickup in in these multiples most of them buy companies somewhere between five and ten times ebitda depending on 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 the model actually someone some 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 in the uk that we own actually buy at three and four times ebitda 
but so so we haven't really seen a a, a, a big shift upwards in in terms of of uh, private multiples so to speak but 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 our interest and growing fascination for uh, with, with the really high performing serial acquirers stems from from our experience that you know these companies they have some very good risk mitigation elements in them due to due to diversification and, and, and many of them but not all are are as i regard low risk fundamental low, low risk business models and then yeah at the same time i think they come with 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 the, um, some some very good elements that that increase growth and and uh, long term uh, potential long term stock returns and this uh, i mean a, a topic which is often discussed uh, among uh, i mean companies that acquire other companies is uh, is the topic of synergies and how do you view these uh, so yeah serial acquirers that that talk about synergies versus not yeah well, well m- most of the literature on on m a focuses on, on large m a right uh, large m a deals in public markets and where where synergies are are uh, important uh, even though they, they they often fail to materialize so serial acquirers on on, on the right one uh, on the other hand they, they they do small and often private deals and Acquisitions of, of small private companies tend to be priced at, at much more favorable, uh, much more favorable multiples than, than public companies. And, uh, what what we, what what we have observed is that you know there there are no forced synergies in in most of these models, and I think that's important in order to 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 keep the entrepreneurial spirit. And so so to answer your question, I I, I think synergies are not important for for our companies. Maybe maybe you can. I mean, I think you have discussed a lot about uh, what 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 characteristics you like in a business, but specifically for serial acquirers, what what's the like two most uh, important uh, factors you you look at? Yeah, it's it if if you look at it from a risk reducing point of view first, and then we can talk about the return enhancing perspective afterwards. But if you look at the first one, the the risk reducing point of view, we have come into these models. Uh, from from the risk reducing perspective that you know these are business models that sell a lot of different products or services to lots of different clients in lots of different markets so so in essence they are very diversified and and i like that i i i like that you know they are not exposed to one single event that you know one customer leaves you or one market goes goes uh, sour or 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 um, um yeah, yeah. So, so, so those kind of single events we, we we try and avoid. So that has led us into these models. But but the, the the other part is is really is really the return perspective. And and uh, I think you recently had another guest on this podcast. Uh, you know, Chris Meyer. At, uh, he's a U.S. investor and and the the author of the Hundred Baggers. Uh, I highly recommend his book, which which talks about the ingredients you need. In a stock to 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 find those that will compound capital, you know, very strongly over the long run, and and what he talked about in your podcast, you know, is 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 the ingredients that that need to be in place, and I think many of these serial acquirers actually have many of those ingredients. If 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 I remember the, the ingredients from the top of my head, you know, it, it's. Often companies that are a bit small to small to medium size, you know, they have a high return on capital. They have often growth in many dimensions, being being sales and, and the margins. 
they have often have durability in terms of growth uh, and and of course it, it it helps to buy them cheap and 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 uh, you might argue that there were some speculative elements uh, last year in in many of these but of course they have come down uh, quite a lot and uh, at the same time you have seen estimates coming up so so i, I think the the that there is more price at 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 at, at more uh, fair prices to today than they were uh, last year I think that it's a really good point when you look at the return for for some of these companies for the last 15 years they have overperformed a lot um so uh, maybe they were too cheap before yeah. I mean it's a yeah I, I think you're right on that that you know if you if you go back 10 15 years you know people didn't really appreciate the, these kind of models so how is the geographical split in in your fund well, uh, in in the, um, the global, uh, we are actually two two portfolio managers. It's it's myself and and Sinova Yunus, um, and and Sinova she manages a Nordic uh, uh, portfolio, and I manage a global one. So for the global fund, we have um, have uh, most exposure to to uh, of, of course outside of the Nordic region, uh, and and we, we we find quite a lot of interesting models in in the uk in in canada we find quite a lot of them and well our experience in the us we have some us exposure of course but uh, our experience is that many of these models often often are in in the hands of private equity and uh, so so the geographical split is is mostly outside of the nordics (laughs) and if we go into more of the portfolio management and the construction a common mistake is to uh, hold on to losers and we touched upon uh, some of your mistakes before and uh, you said that you want to buy them back like if you if they deteriorate you sell them and then you want to buy them back when they improve uh, in the fundamentals so that's the the key is to understand if they are actually improving in the short run so and many investors are mixing up the sinking stock price with the bad fundamentals so how do you go about Figuring this out and not get swayed by Mr. Market. Yeah. Um, so, so, so the key lessons for my part has has been uh, to be very hesitant to sell stocks in companies that are working perfectly. Uh, it it has to be more than just uh, the pricing of the share, uh, because sometimes the stocks of, of of our companies they run ahead of the underlying performance of, of the companies. And the, the, the lesson from our part uh, is, 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 is really not to let the temporary high price of the, of the stock scare, scare me out of the company. So it really boils down to, to I more or less derived at three reasons to, to, to sell a stock. And, and the first one is quite simple. It's, it's that we made a mistake in buying the company in, in the first instance. So, so the company is not as strong as you thought, you know, we have, could have underestimated cyclicality in the in the industry or the company, and just basically done a mistake, and and should should take the consequence of that. And the second reason to, to sell a stock is that you don't trust management anymore, and management just starts to convey a new message or a message that you do not understand. You do not like the language that they use, and and they, yeah. Uh, that's also a big red flag in 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 in, in my eyes. Um, I have made several misjudgments about management over the years, and, and through these mistakes, I've arrived at some uh, principles regarding management and 
that, that we just talked about. And, and the, the third reason to, to sell a stock is, of course, the pricing of the share, but, but which is far beyond what you think is rational. And I think this is the most difficult reason to sell. And, and therefore, I'm very, very yeah, reluctant to, to sell based on pricing of the share alone. And there, there are always very good reasons why a stock trades at, at, at a high multiple. And I guess we could add to that list, if you find something better, you would buy that, of course. Yeah, we, 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 we try to do that. <clears throat> so you mentioned in the book that the largest holdings in one's portfolio shall not be those that offer the highest return, but instead the ones with low risk and above average returns. Can you expand a little bit on this? Well, well my experience is that, my personal experience is that the largest position in the fund, in the portfolio, should should have the least fundamental risk to them uh, not necessarily the highest return potential so so the largest positions in 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 your uh, i think in in your portfolio should should work to decrease the risk of the portfolio rather to to increase the total risk and uh, the, the largest holdings in in my view should you have the lowest likelihood of a, of a permanent capital loss and of course, every investor ha- ha- has, has has different mindset in in terms of position sizing, and you should find your own prefer- preference depending on your risk tolerance. And, and uh, the best way to learn how to size positions is is to learn by experience. I think uh, there's there's no no right or wrong diversification, even though financial theory says that most of these unsystematic risk is diversified when you reach twenty twenty five stocks and. I think you just have to work to find your own style and and your own risk tolerance. I have a bit of a philosophical question maybe, but uh, I really like that your book is, one part is very quantitative and it's very, in a way, theoretical, even though you link it to behavioral aspects, for example, the hyperbolic discounting. And then you have this other part, which is very qualitative, focused on culture and management and so on. So how many percentage of investing would you say is science and how many percentage is art? <laughs> That's a good question. How should I answer that? Uh, my experience has been from the quantitative side over to the more qualitative aspects. Uh, so when I started investing, uh, you know, I, I, I thought you could find the answers in the spreadsheets. So of course, we have to look at financial history and, and stuff like that. But you know, I, I've just become more and more interested in qualitative aspects and uh, you know what I talked about early on uh, you know how companies organize themselves to to foster entrepreneurial energy I've become much more interested in management uh, the, the the message and, and the signals that management sends to investors and, and of course employees and on the quantitative part it, it has to do with the uh, capital allocation that we also talked about so in summary i think that my my investment journey has has moved i wouldn't say from but but you know over to the more qualitative part because uh, i i find that to be the, the 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 most important ones when when you're investing for the long run and the, uh, I mean, uh, we know that you're a big uh, reader as us, and uh, we wonder if you have any uh, any recommendations of books that you that you want to mention that have have shaped your career and life. Yeah, I think you know, uh, I think the Outsiders that I mentioned by William Thorndike is is just great uh, regarding capital allocation and and 
uh, on the philosophical front, you know, on, on living better lives. Uh, th- that's a difficult one. But but I, I think that Dale Carnegie, uh, you know, and his books, especially the one How to Win Friends and Influence People is, is a great one. The, the content of that book is, is of course, very good and, and better than the title, I would say. Uh, and, and currently I'm reading Think Again by Adam Grant, who is an organizational psycholo- psychologist, and, and he's got some interesting perspectives on rethinking and and I really like from his book the term confident humility. That that that's really something we try to find in management teams. And is there any book that you would like to exist? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, and not write yourself, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I, you know, it would be very interesting to you know there. Are, There are tons of books by Warren Buffett uh, out there, but but um, it would be very interesting to 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 read a book that uh, I haven't seen exist uh, by uh, you know written uh, on Mark Leonardian Constellation Software, a Canadian software conglomerate that you know is you know it's, it's uh, yeah I, I think that's just as interest interesting as 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 the story of of, uh, of Berkshire. So. Looking forward to someone writing that one. <laughs> and do you want to write more yourself? Yeah, of course I do. Uh, and uh, yeah, as I said in the in the in the beginning, we we like process, and you know, writing a little bit every day, and you know, it, suddenly you you have a book there, and uh, so we try to continue to write and and to to clarify our 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 thoughts. Thank you so much, Odbjorn, for a very thoughtful conversation and. Uh, It was great to hear about uh, your insights and uh, more about your book, Investing in Value Creators, which we, of course, highly recommend. Uh, do you have something more you want to add before we finish up? No, no, just thanks. Thanks a lot for very good questions and uh, thanks for getting in touch and enjoy the enjoy the conversation. Great. And where can our audience follow you? Well, uh, I, uh, I'm on LinkedIn, of course, and uh, I'm not very active on Twitter, but uh, I have an account there and, and not very active. So... But we on our homepage actually we 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 put out some some articles now and then and uh, of course our half year reports uh, or yearly and half year reports are are quite extensive so so they can find find uh, more information on, on the on the web page Perfect. We will put that in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Adbjorn. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Investing by the Books, a podcast by Redeye. Follow us on Twitter at IB underscore RedEye and email us at ib.podcast at RedEye.se. To improve, we'd love to hear your feedback, so please rate and review us. Notice that the content in this podcast is not and shall not be construed as investment advice. This information is meant to be informative and for general purposes only. For full disclaimer, visit RedEye.se. I'm your host, Eddie Palmian, and until next time, I sincerely wish you the best of luck on your journey through life and investing.